Good morning. Our reading today is from Philippians 3, 12 through 16. I'll give you a minute to turn there in your Bibles or devices. And I'm really glad you're here this morning together in the room and those on the live stream with us. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, you are the only one who is perfect with ways and thoughts so far above what we could ever try to grasp. And you've pressed forward, you strained forward as you came into this world as God with us that we celebrated yesterday. Entering the world and enduring by taking on the cross to pay our sin. And then you pressed into the upward call of overcoming death forever to seal us in hope by your powerful resurrection. Thank you, God. And all this so we could know we are your very own. And I confess, Lord, we are so easily short-sighted and have blind spots and that that lack of perfection in us that we struggle with, it means we have a history that taps us on the shoulder behind us. A history all mixed with blessing, with joy, with pain and sorrow. A history, though, that's not hidden from you. For your word says it clearly, all things are open and laid bare to you. So thank you, God, that you are a God who sees. Thank you that you hold and you have been present in our days and will continue to be in the ones to come. And we can't deny, God, the parts of our past we wish weren't there, the adversary whispering things will never change. Even the good things we hold can be tainted by the enemy who wants to bring fear and mistrust. And I rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus over those things. I pray, God, that in all that makes us who we are today, those blessings, those joys, those sorrows, those pains, that you who are our redeemer would overarch over all those places of our lives, that we would entrust in your hands and care what has been behind us and know with certainty your enduring forgiveness and great mercy as we press onward in this upward life you offer in Christ, that we would live anew, God, and offer out in our friendships, in our family dynamics, in our communities, and in our schools, God, the comfort that we have known in you through Christ, we would give that to those we love, to those who are strangers, to those who are needy, to those who are lost. I thank you, Father, for our brother Alden. I thank you that we get to hear your word from him today and, and his journey of life in you, of um, of joy and pain and sorrow and um, entrusting his life to you and that we get to hear from your word today um, in this powerful chapter of Philippians 
of your wonderful work of grace and mercy in our lives that gives us endurance, that boasts of how you pluck us out of that miry pit, God, and you set our feet on a firm place to stand, um, and you put this graceful, new, merciful song in our hearts to glorify you. And I pray these things in the powerful name of our resurrected Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Alden. Glad you're here. As Tommy mentioned, this is my first time preaching. I know you're normally used to seeing me do announcements, so this is going to be a little change of tone and pace for you and for me seeing me here. And I think that's appropriate because this is, we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about the Word of God, and so that is a serious matter. So I'm honored to be here. I'm humbled to be here preaching to you. Um, so let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Christmas and thank you for the new year, Lord. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would um, have each of us walk out of here refreshed to strive after you um, for this week and this year. Um, thank you that we get to be at church today. Thank you that we know you and thank you for dying for us. In your name we pray, amen. So a little background on Paul and the book of Philippians before we jump into our specific text. Paul, um, his name was Saul, that's his Hebrew name anyway. He has a Roman name named Paul, that's how we know about him. Um, and I didn't actually know that while I was preparing for this sermon. I thought that he like, was named Saul and then when he got converted that he got his name changed to Paul. And I've heard that from a few different people before, but yeah, that was something that I assumed um, for all this time, and that turns out not to totally be the case. Um, actually, when he gets converted, Jesus addresses him as Saul, and when Jesus sends a messenger to Paul, um, after he gets converted, he got his eyes blinded. We'll talk more about that in a second. Um, the Christian that Jesus sends to him calls him Saul, and actually the first mention of him as Paul is as late as Acts chapter 13, verse 9, when it just simply says, Saul, who was also called Paul. So there's no indication of a name change here, and there's no indication actually anywhere in Scripture that his name was ever changed. So as it turns out, he had dual names, and I guess that was common back then. That's what my studying told me. So what we come with is his Hebrew name was Saul, named after the first king of Israel, and his Roman name was Paul. Probably the reason that he went by his Roman name after his conversion and throughout his missionary journeys was because he primarily ministered to Gentile people who would be more familiar with a Roman name than a Hebrew name. So I didn't know that before. Maybe I'm the only one, but I think that's important as we get a little bit of background on Paul. As far as his work life goes, he studied under a rabbi named Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was kind of a big hotshot um, Jewish scholar. He was known as the beauty of the law. Uh, he really like embodied the Old Testament is what uh, the Jews of his day uh, considered Gamaliel. And so Paul studied under this guy. So he knew his Old Testament really well. He didn't just have a PhD in the Old Testament. He was an academic advisor for Old Testament PhD students. He was a leading and rising Old Testament scholar. Uh, Galatians tells us that he was outclassing the dominant Jewish scholars of his day. His academic advisor was also at the top, was one of the top scholars of his day. Paul was a Pharisee, Philippians 3, 5 tells us. That gives him a lot of religious authority. Um, he was also a Roman citizen, 
Acts 22.8 tells us that. That gave him high credentials in society. So he had particular rights as a Roman citizen that others did not. So these things put together made Paul a pretty powerful figure. He was educated by a reputable scholar. He had religious authority, and he demanded respect as a Roman citizen. He was really passionate about Judaism. In fact, he was so passionate that he actually, when Christianity sprung out from Judaism, Paul had Christians murdered. He was that zealous for it. He figured, hey, these people are dishonoring God's way. Judaism, this needs to be stopped. So here he is murdering Christians, and then in Acts 9, he gets converted. Jesus blinds him while he's on his road to Damascus, and actually what he's doing in Damascus is getting papers to get signed so that he can go drag more Christians out of their homes and put them in prison. So Jesus blinds him, speaks to him, asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Three days later, Jesus sends a Christian to pray for Saul to receive his sight. Jesus blinds him. And then after that happens, Paul briefly does some teaching about Jesus in the very town that he got converted in, spends three years in Arabia, and then comes to Jerusalem to begin his famous Christian ministry. This ministry included evangelism, mission trips, church planting, and writing 13 New Testament letters. One of those is the book of Philippians, which we're talking about this morning. And it's called Philippians because it's addressed to the Christians living in the town called Philippi. So, Paul wrote Philippians from a prison. He was in prison because he was preaching the Christian gospel. And in that time, it was pretty normal for Christians to get imprisoned because of their faith. Um, But that didn't keep Paul down. In fact, in chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, Paul says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So he was kind of excited that he was in prison. Now, that's not because he was excited about prison, but he was excited about the gospel. He had a few specific reasons for writing the letter to the Philippians. The first one is he wanted to thank the Philippians for their financial gift that they gave him. They supported him on a mission trip, and he was thanking them. They were one of the few people that did that for him in that moment. Paul also calls the Philippians to unify together for Jesus. He warns also against false teachers who contradict the gospel. Um, But the theme most present in our specific text is going to be about unifying together toward Jesus. I think that's some helpful background info, though, as we dig into what Philippians is primarily about. And of course, we're going to talk more about that. Um, But now that we have a little bit of background under our belt, I would like to pose a question to us. And that question is, what are you striving for? Whatever comes to mind, I hope we hold on to that as we dig into the passage further. But I ask that in particular because this is the last Sunday before the new year. Um, And this week, this is a week that a lot of us look back and evaluate our past year and look ahead at the year to come. The new year is a mile marker for a lot of us, and it helps us consider where we've come from and where we're going. Um, As far as where we're coming from, maybe this has been a really great year for you. Maybe you've crushed it. You felt awesome, never had a better year. Maybe you've never had a worse year. Maybe this is the worst year you've had so far. But either way, I think this text has a lot to say to either situation, especially because it shows us that Regardless of what's in our past, striving toward Christ is always worthwhile, over and above striving for anything else. In fact, if I had to summarize this sermon text, I would say this sentence. We strive toward Christ over everything because he is so awesome. Around this time of year, people often make New Year's resolutions. 
Maybe eat well, work out more, save more money, read more, spend more time with family, quit a particular bad habit. Not everybody likes New Year's resolutions, but I think everybody, no matter who we are, at least makes some form of goal, right? We all, we're setting goals of some sort, whether we call it a resolution or not. Um, but even then, not, not all, like some of our goals might be good, some of our goals might be bad. I think a lot of the goals that we set are good. Like all these that I just listed, I think those are like good goals. And it's worthwhile to strive for goals that make us live better. I want to affirm that. I totally uh, believe that. But I also hope that as we read and study this verse, we will see that over and above striving after goals like these, which are really good and important, the one necessary thing that we do is to resolve to strive for Jesus. Our, our goals might even be spiritual. You might say, I'd like to read one chapter of the Bible every day this year. Or, I want to read the Bible in a year. There's a lot of Bible in a year plans. They're great. Or maybe you're saying, I want to pray every morning. Jonathan Edwards, he was famous for his resolutions. He was a preacher in Northampton in the 1700s. Now, he didn't make New Year's resolutions, but he compiled a list of resolutions over the span of one of the first years of his ministry. It would say things like, resolved, only to do things for the glory of God. Like, that was kind of the tone of his resolutions. So I have a couple of quotes here. Yeah, it is, it's like a little bit funny, right? So here, these are a few quotes here. Resolved, never to lose one amount of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Like, dang, man, you know. Second, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Or resolved to strive every week to be brought higher in religion to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. Now look, the, these resolutions are great, right? I, I mean, I even find them a little inspiring. To be determined to try to live for God better and better, to learn about Him more and more, and to exercise the knowledge that I get of Him, that's like, that's, that's a good thing. But we also need to make sure that our heart is coming from the right place, right? I mean, no matter what goals we set, whether for the new year or not, I hope that this can be an encouragement to remember that our ultimate goal always is Jesus. And no matter where we are, no matter where we're coming from, and no matter where we're going, I hope that this can be a reminder that we're headed towards someone who's so awesome that both the good and the bad pale in comparison. And so with that said, let's read our first verse. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So the first question we might ask about that is, well, what is this? Um, well, verse 11 explains that, and that'll be up on the screens on either side of me. And verse 11 reads, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And so I only show this verse to show that Paul's talking about the resurrection of the dead when he says the word this in verse 12. So going back to verse 12, let's read it again with that in mind. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And so, okay, this and perfection, resurrection and perfection, those are Paul's goals. He wasn't perfect, but he did strive for it. I think another thing worth noting is he's talking about resurrection and perfection. That's two things. But then he says, I press on to make it my own. It is a singular word. He doesn't say make them my own. He says make it my own. So for Paul, resurrection and perfection are one thing. They go together. He's pressing on to make that his own. Resurrection and perfection is Paul's goal, his singular goal. 
That's what he's pressing on for to make his own. I think it's worth pointing out here also, Paul is saying he's not perfect. Paul's like a Christian hero, right? Like, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He planted all these churches. He was awesome. Like, he, like, got stoned. They thought he was going to die. They thought he was dead. And then he got up and, like, preached. You know, like, this guy's, like, the man, you know? Like, but he's not perfect. And neither are we. I don't think too many of us in this room would say, like, yeah, I think I'm perfect. But I think it's helpful just to note here, this is, like, truly, like, God's design. We're supposed to say we're not perfect. But we're also supposed to want to be perfect. He presses on to make it his own. So why does Paul want to be perfect? I think if I were to pull this room and I were to ask all of us, hey, do you want to be perfect? Most of us would probably say yes. And second, if I were to pull this room and ask, hey, do you want life after death? Like, do you want resurrection? I think we'd say yes. But what would our motive be for wanting perfection and wanting resurrection? Let's compare our reasons for wanting perfection and resurrection to Paul's reasons. Verse 12, toward the end, starting with the word because, it reads, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, before we dig into the broad meaning of the text, I do want to insert just a small note about the phrase made me his own. The, Greek, the original Greek could mean his own. It means both. It means both his own and take a hold of. So in this slide, I'm comparing the ESV and the NASB translations just to kind of show this point. The ESV reads, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The NASB says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which Christ also, for that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. And so I just show this to show Jesus making us his own is him laying a hold of us. It's the same thing. It's the same word. So that's little note aside. Paul desires perfection and resurrection because Jesus has made Paul his own. Jesus has laid a hold of Paul, and that motivates him to take a hold of perfection and resurrection. A really consistent theme in Scripture um, is that we do things out of a grateful response for what Jesus has done for us already. Paul presses on for Jesus because Jesus has laid a hold of him. A Bible verse that talks about this is 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, and it says, We love because he first loved us. So the love I have for Jesus is motivated by the love he first had for me. And I think we can relate to this idea. Um, when someone does something really generous for you, 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 you like want to hang out with them. You, you want to like be generous back to them. I can share an example that happened to me this past month of someone that was generous to me in in January, I'm starting as an intern at Mercy House, and I need to fundraise for my salary. Um, so I, I, haven't, I still haven't reached out to people for support yet, um, but a few people have just contacted me hearing that, like, oh, I hear what you're doing. I'd love to give you these contacts. So you can start support raising. I'm like, oh, wow, that's great. Sure. Um, so some, a friend of a friend, I've never even met these people. They get me in touch with someone, I tell them about the, my ministry, I'm having a phone call with these people, this is the first time I've contacted them in my life, I don't really know who they are, tell them about my ministry, my financial needs, sweet phone call, and then about a week later, they text me, and they let me know that they have sent $20,000 to my account at Mercy House, and I've never met these people, and I only had a single one-hour phone call with them, and they gave me 20 grand. They did that for God, not for me. I know that, and they told me that. 
but I'm still grateful. I mean, that's awesome, you know? So I called them to thank them, and after I was done sobbing, which, I mean, how professional is that, right? Um, but I get myself together, and they're like, yeah, oh, honey, if you could just, like, send us email updates, that would be great. Maybe if we're in town, like, if you have time to see us, we'd love to see you. And I'm like, I think I can clear my schedule, you know? Like, I think I can make this happen. Like, I'll book a flight right now, you know what I mean? Like, what in the world? Like, I can afford that now, you know? Like, what? <laughs> and it's the same way with Jesus. We're so grateful to him that we can't help but serve him. So how did Jesus make Paul his own? Well, to use other verbiage, how does Jesus lay a hold of us? That's the question that I'm setting out to answer now. So I'm going to do that by using John chapter 28, sorry, John chapter 10, verse 28. And it reads, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mean, eternal life, you're grateful for that, right? I mean, that's a gift, you know? And of course, eternal life means, to, to quote this passage, we will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is what it means that Jesus takes a hold of us. He holds us and he doesn't let go eternally. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus didn't use a really big check to purchase your eternal life either. My friends, Jesus bought our eternal life with his life. That's even more generous. And it had to happen that way. It had to happen that way because God is perfect and we're not. In our current state of being imperfect, we're incompatible with God. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there are passages warning that if you go into the presence of God, you're just going to die. Because God's perfect and we're not. We're not worthy to be, even be with God or in his presence even the prophets that God used to write scripture were not perfect. Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, when he sees a vision from God, his immediate response is, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. The moment he just sees a vision of God, he recognizes how unworthy he is. And God, he can't help it. He's perfect. That is the way that he is. And we can't help it. We're not. That's the way that we are. It's like if you were to tell me, hey, Alden, become a rock. Like, I can't become a rock. I'm Alden. It's like an absurd example. You're like, what the kind of example? But it's like, that's the way. I, I just, it's not my nature. I can't become a rock. In the same way, I can't become perfect. I'm imperfect. It is the way I am. And I'm not being, like, particularly hard on myself. I don't think I'm this, like, uniquely wicked, horrible person. You know, like, just realistically, I'm just not a perfect person. So compared to God, I, I deserve to be destroyed, just like these Old Testament people who were destroyed because they weren't worthy. And if we don't get eternal life, 2 Thessalonians warns us it's actually, our end is eternal destruction. That's not just dying, like the Old Testament people were to be used as an example. This is an eternal punishment. But Jesus was destroyed to make us worthy. Jesus gave his life to give us eternal life. Right? Jesus says he gives us eternal life. Notice also in John chapter 10, verse 28, that Jesus is the one who gives us the eternal life. We're not the ones who, like, earn it and grab a hold of it and, like, use it right and then we get it. No, like, Jesus just gives it to us. So we depend on Jesus to save us. And we depend on Jesus to hold us. 
and he does hold us. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's how Jesus makes us his own. That's how Jesus lays a hold of us. He dies for us to give us eternal life with him. And that's something to be grateful for. So looking at verse 12 again, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So, okay, we know how Jesus makes us his own, and we see why that's so motivating. I'd like to mention, before we finish this, just one last aside about verse 12, and that is that Paul is pressing on towards something of which his result is certain. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 makes a really helpful point of this, and it reads, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This good work is God giving you eternal life. I give them eternal life, the John 10 verse. That's the good work God starts, the good work that he begins in us. That's eternal life. That's salvation. And Jesus brings it to completion the day that we resurrect with him. And our resurrection and perfection with Jesus on that last day, to quote Philippians 1, verse 6, is sure. This is something we can strive for this year and be sure that we'll obtain it. Whatever your goals are, they're not sure. They're not certain. You want to eat healthier, that is like such a good thing. But like you might not. You want to save money, that's such a good thing. But it might not work out. You want to get married? That's a beautiful desire. But you might never marry. You want to improve your marriage? That is like super noble. But your marriage might get even harder this year. Like Jonathan Edwards, you want to read your Bible and pray more? That's like so good. But what if you miss more days this year than you did last year? My friends, this, this setting goals is important. Like, like we should set goals. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. So again, I'm not trying to knock New Year's resolutions or knock goals. But just as a matter of fact, it's possible that our goals might not work out. And it's possible that we might not meet any of our resolutions. But if you're a Christian, it is impossible to miss resurrection and perfection with Jesus Christ in the last day. Because it is sure, it is impossible for you to miss it. If you believe that Jesus died to forgive your sin, and if you believe that he rose from the dead afterward... And if you believe that you'll follow suit when he returns, you literally can't miss it. It's impossible. God has made it sure. So, more than you set your mind on any goal, and you should set your mind on other goals, but more than you set your mind on any goal, set your mind on this sure goal of resurrection with Jesus. Verse 13 says, the very beginning of it says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And so brothers here is just Christians, brothers in Christ, family of Christ. That's Paul's idea here. So it's, it's, it's kind of reading Christians. I don't consider that I've made it my own. If you're a Christian, you haven't made it yet. There's still more striving to do. So Jesus did it. We didn't do it, right? We, we get that. It's been done. It's been guaranteed, and it's been finished, right? Yet we still haven't made it. How, how are we supposed to think about this? Well, as verses 13 and 14 continue... Let's see that. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so I want to press into this phrase, one thing, 
one thing. Paul is focused on one thing. He's, he's sold out. And if, it's as if there's nothing else like, worthy of his thoughts. He considers this the one thing he does. Now, obviously, Paul eats food. Paul uses the restroom. Paul lives a normal life like you and I do. But he does so focused intently on one thing. Everything Paul does in his life, similar to things that you and I do, he does those things, but while focused on that one thing, Jesus. Now, imagine you, like, host a party, you're excited, you want to hang out with your friends. The reason you have this party is because you want to hang out with your friends, but you're, like, distracted by, like, the chores and the to-dos. By the end of it, everybody's left, and you haven't, like, actually had a conversation with anybody. I've had that experience. It's a bummer. You're not really focused on the one thing, are you? You're focused on many things, like dishes, like adjusting music, blah, 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 all these things, right? And you're distracted from the one thing that you've missed out on the whole reason, your primary one thing goal that you set out to do. So when Paul says that he does one thing, everything that he does in life serves the purpose of bringing him to that one thing, which is Jesus. So whatever your goals might be this year, let's make sure that those individual goals serve the greater goal of striving toward Jesus. Let's look again at verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Christians are not complete until the day we resurrect. We know that. And we know that the one thing that we are to focus on is Jesus. Now the phrase in verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, that tells us what to do, and then the next verse in verse 14 tells us why we're supposed to do it. So that's kind of where we're, where we're headed here. So first, let's see what we're supposed to do. Personally, before preparing this sermon, every time I would read the phrase forgetting what lies behind in these verses, I would think about my sins of the past. And that's true, that's part of what it means. It's, all right, I've sinned before, I forget about it, and I move on toward Jesus. Amen, that, that's true. But after reading several commentaries, I realized that's an assumption I read into the text that's not actually there. It doesn't say forgetting the sins that lie behind. It says forgetting what lies behind. That's a lot more vague, a lot like more broad. And guys, it's just as important to forget the good things that we've done as it is to forget the bad things that we've done. Now, as we think about how to apply this to our lives, I think this is obvious, but I do want to say, if you're like me and you're like a little bit like uptight about things like this, this maybe this is helpful to you. This does not mean that we literally forget everything that's ever happened in our past, like to the point that someone asks us, like, hey, what'd you have for lunch? Sorry, I gotta forget what lies in the past, I gotta strive on. You know, like that, that's not what's happening here. I mean, just to prove that, in chapter two, Paul calls on the Philippians to remember how faithful Timothy had been to them in his ministry to them. A couple verses after that, Paul himself recalls a time when his fellow missionary, Epaphroditus, was sick and nearly died. Even in the last verse of our sermon text, in verse 16, Paul says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. The things that we've learned, hold on to those things. So, this is not a call for us to lose our memory. The progress God makes in us is worth celebrating. We should be grateful that God does awesome things and does awesome things with us. And there's plenty of moments in Scripture where God calls us to remember specific great things that He's done. So when the text reads, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. When it says that, that means that Jesus is just much more awesome than the goal of whatever it is that we've strived for in the past, whether good or bad. 
Philippians 3, chapter 8, is pretty important to this idea, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on it. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus is worth everything, even in the here and now, prior to our resurrection. Let me give you several reasons why Jesus is more awesome than everything else. My friends, the God of the universe is inviting you to know him personally and eternally. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And out of all the things that he could have chosen to do, which is everything because he's God, he's extremely concerned to know you. And he loves us so much that he died so that we could know him. And he loves us so much that he took the punishment of hell for our sakes so that we wouldn't have to take that. And he did that for us joyfully. And yes, it was traumatic for Jesus on that cross. Yes, he was so distraught that just while thinking about the cross, he literally sweated blood. But the Bible also says that he did that from a place of joy in God. So while being distraught in his circumstance, he loved us enough to take an eternity of pain on himself so that we would have an eternity of joy with him. And he longs to give us that joy. That joy is the satisfaction in knowing that we're loved by God. I think that's important, so I'll say that again. Joy is the satisfaction in knowing that we're loved by God. In fact, in John 15, Jesus explains everything he did, he did so that our joy would be full. He wants to give us full joy. This is his heart for us. This is a man who's worth counting everything as lost simply because we know him. That's enough. He's so much more awesome than everything. And this joy I'm talking about does not mean that we never get sad. We might even be severely clinically depressed for the rest of our lives. But this joy that Jesus gives us, this full joy that comes from simply being known by Jesus, is able to bring us to a place where we can actually say, wow, life is horrible right now, but because I have Jesus with me, and because he knows me, and because he loves me, I'm satisfied. Our circumstantial happiness, we count that as garbage compared to the satisfaction that we have being known by Jesus. Whether my circumstances are lovely or whether they're horrible, Jesus is so awesome that ultimately my circumstances are irrelevant. I'm satisfied in him regardless. So wherever I go, he is with me. Wherever I go, he is loving me. Wherever I go, he is protecting me. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Whatever I do, whatever I've done, whether right or wrong, Jesus is compassionate toward me. And whatever I do, whatever I've done, whether right or wrong, Jesus desires to know me. No matter how much I hurt him, he will never cast me away. He never cracks under frustration. He never gets impatient with me. When I hurt him by sinning against him, he responds by giving me even more grace. He prays for me constantly. He advocates for me constantly. That just means he stands up for me and defends me constantly. He sympathizes with me constantly because although he was God sitting on the throne where he belongs, he came down and became a lowly man so that he could sympathize with me over the trials of my life. This is who Jesus is. This is a man worth knowing. So Philippians 3.8 Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus is so awesome that he's worth everything. So looking again at verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself is our goal. Jesus himself is our prize. When God calls us, he calls us to Jesus. And that's not even accounting for the beauty of the resurrection. 
At the resurrection, we're going to be so preoccupied with Jesus' glory, we're going to forget both the awesome and awful things that we've done, and we're just going to be infatuated with the awesome person of Jesus. There aren't going to be any distractions in heaven. At least part of why resurrection with Christ is going to be better than before is, I think, probably because our glorified bodies are going to have glorified brains that can more fully perceive how glorious Jesus is. I don't know all of the reasons why the resurrection will be better, but I think that's at least one. The glory of Jesus now and the glory of Jesus in the resurrection, both of those totally outweigh whatever horrible things you've done and whatever wonderful things you've done. The glory of Jesus now and the glory of Jesus in the resurrection totally outweighs how awesome or awful your year has been. Now, that doesn't mean your year hasn't been hard. I hope this doesn't sound like insensitive. I'm sure there are plenty of people here who have had really, really horrible years, and it's been really hard, like deeply challenging. I don't want to minimize that, but I do want to maximize how awesome Jesus is compared to all of that. It does mean that resurrection with Jesus is better than how hard your year has been. And while we wait on our resurrection, let's remember Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which reads, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So my friends, let's hope for the one thing that is sure. The resurrection is when God has finished his work in us. That's when we're perfect and that's when we're complete. It's a fulfillment of all promises of God. One thing. Paul was an Old Testament scholar, right? He knew the Old Testament promises of God. The Jews were awaiting the fulfillment of that Old Testament. And here's Paul, who's super familiar with the Old Testament, saying this is the one thing that all that's talking about. Paul thought that this was all entirely what the Old Testament was pointing toward. Resurrection is the culmination of our Christian hope. Proverbs 13, 21 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. I think we know what it's like to be disappointed. We, we felt that way. It's a bummer. Makes the heart sick, right? But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So let's hope for the one thing that won't disappoint us. Let's hope for that one thing. I've heard some people say, I've heard a lot of people say that they like some specific lessons of Christianity, but they don't really believe in the resurrection. Well, if that's you, then you don't believe in the focal point of Christianity. When every detail of the Bible points toward the ultimate culmination of resurrection with Christ, and you say you believe some specific things, but not the one thing that every detail culminates toward, my friend, you don't believe Christianity at all. And you're ignoring the central thesis that each detail serves to uphold. You're seeing the trees, but you're not seeing the forest of it. Now, maybe your hesitation is historical. Maybe it's a scientific problem. And I'll grant you, based on the myriad of informal experiments that we've conducted as a human global population, we've concluded that generally those who die tend to stay dead. I, I've, I've seen the data. I, I'm there. So I, I say that to say I understand this is a big claim that Jesus rose from the dead and that we're going to follow suit. I know that that's a stark claim. It's bold. And there are plenty of historical, philosophical, scientific questions that we can ask about that 
and that's important to do. And if that interests you, I'd love to talk to you after service. That's a big part of my story is grappling with questions about how could God really be real? How could these claims of the Bible be seriously defended, especially the resurrection? I studied mechanical engineering both in undergrad and in grad school. I, I am a scientist. I think it's a good thing to grapple with questions like, is this reasonable? And so, yeah, I've met people that say they don't believe in God, but oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, when I like really start talking with them about life and faith and things like that, when people are honest, they, they tell me like, well, honestly, I don't really want to change my life either. I don't, I don't want to do that. Or maybe they've been hurt by a Christian before. And so they dismiss the whole faith as unreasonable to kind of just because they're, they're hurt by Christianity. Or maybe you feel like you've been hurt by God himself and you're upset at him and so you protect yourself by telling yourself that God's not actually real. Yeah, some specific teachings of the Bible are helpful, but that's it. My friend, don't fool yourself. Don't tell yourself that God's not real because you don't want to change your life. Even if you do feel hurt by God, don't tell yourself he's not real to protect yourself because, my friend, I may not understand what you've been through and I, I don't. But I do understand what God says, and God says that he invites you to know him. He died for you and was destroyed for you to invite you to really know him. And that's worth facing your questions and your insecurities. The person that Jesus is, is worth it. He's so worth it that we strive for him as the one thing that we do. He's worth it. So what does that look like? Well, in our sermon text, God tells us, don't focus on the sins of your past. Those were meant to be forgotten. And don't get lost in the glory days, because you have better days coming. And also, don't focus on the great achievements you've made, even if you've done them for Jesus. Because in this life, it's never appropriate for us to feel like we've accomplished all there is to get done. In sports, the returning champions never say, we've done enough, we won last year. Because they're always looking ahead to the next championship. They show up to the game wondering if they're going to win. Just because they won last year doesn't mean they're going to win this year. They're not resting on past achievements. And we're similar. We're always looking forward to the next life with Christ. And we're, so we're never finished in this life. We always have more striving to do. Now at this point, if you're like me, you're inclined to get a little anxious right now. What do you mean I'm never done? Now, personally, I'm very goal-oriented, and I work best when I have a task and a deadline and a set amount of time, and I just like crush it, and then I chill out real hard. That's like how I try to get a lot of my work done. But then now here I am, and you're telling me my goal's never met, and I'm always straining and straining until I drop dead. That, that's what I'm hearing. Well, hold on. Let's see what Jesus says the straining is actually supposed to look like. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 will be to either side of me on these screens. And it reads, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 28 Weary, heavy laden, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Yeah, that's me. Like, wow, I have to strive until I'm dead? No resting? That's, I'm weary and heavy laden. This is a huge task. But then how does the verse conclude? And I will give you rest. 
And so if we strive and if we strain the way that Jesus instructs us to, then we'll strive from a place of resting in God. Let's look at the rest of the passage. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you. A yoke was a, a giant bar that you would put on the shoulder of an oxen, and it would be attached to a heavy device that tills the soil behind the animal. This thing is heavy. It, it, you literally need to be as strong as a cow to pull it. You need to be a cow to pull it. So that's a heavy burden, right? But then it says, how does it follow up? Learn. I'm gentle and lowly. My burden is light. Oh, that's a lot different than like how I was anticipating, right? So my friends, this isn't some like desperate straining toward Jesus. This isn't anxious. This is not a heavy burden. In fact, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's like an oxymoron, right? Like that's, but the burden is designed to be liberating to us. So as we strive and as we strain, we don't stress about the outcome, do we? Because as Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says again, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, we're not championship sports athletes who come showing up to a game really nervous about how it's going to go striving and straining because they're just like desperate. That's not how we strive and strain. Our game is already won. Our result is, to quote Philippians 1.6, it is sure. That takes the pressure off, doesn't it? So yeah, we do. We strive and we strain. But we do so from a place of resting in God's promises. If that point about striving and straining from a place of rest is helpful to you, I got a lot of that from the book in the back, Gentle and Lowly. I found it really helpful. A lot of staff and a lot of family groups have been reading it. I've loved it, so I'd love to recommend that to you. But okay, so this is helpful. I know where my heart posture should be. I know that out of a place of peace and rest in God, I strive forward toward him, focusing on the sure goal of my resurrection with him. But where are all the ways that this is going to affect my life? I see so many places this could apply to my life. Where, like, where do I start? Well, let's look at the very next verse of our sermon text. Verse 15 reads, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Look at the tone of this sweet verse. This is not some, hey, get it together, people, you're doing horrible. Fix yourself. That's not, that's not at all the tone. It just says, let those of us who are mature, and now, as, an aside, as a note here, that word mature, that's just Paul and all of us Christians who have not yet made it. That is all of us Christians, those of us who are mature. It's not like some graduation. All of us, that's Paul and us. So let those of us who are mature, let we Christians think this way, and that way is aiming toward Jesus as the one thing that's important. And if in anything you happen to think otherwise, if you have room to grow in thinking this way, which all of us do, God will show you that. God's going to show you where you fall short and where you can pursue him better. This verse says nothing of punishment. It says nothing of intensity. God is not putting pressure on us here. He simply says, hey, if you're not thinking rightly as a Christian, I'll show you so that you can know me even better. A detail about verse 15 that I'd like us not to miss, at the very beginning of verse 15, it says, let those of us who are mature think this way. I want to look at that word us. 
Paul is inviting the Philippians to strive toward Jesus together with him. That's us, like a community thing. And my friends, I hope we can do that. None of us has yet reached our goal, right? So let's strive and let's strain from a place of rest in God together. I think practically one way we can apply this text to our lives is just simply by asking a Christian friend that we trust, hey, what's one way that I can better pursue Christ in my life? I think that's as simple as it could be. And I think that's the us, the community effort to strive together toward Christ. You've sinned a lot against Christ. Forget what's behind. Come join me. Come join us at Mercy House as we strive toward resurrection with Jesus together. You've achieved a lot in your life. Congratulations. But also forget what's behind. Come join me. Come join us at Mercy House as we strive toward Jesus together. No one's farther ahead and no one is falling behind. We all have the same job. We all do the same thing. All of our jobs are still unfinished. We all have the same job status. Incomplete. So no matter your life situation, you're no better or worse than any other Christian. And no Christian is any better or worse than you. So let's give each other grace. And let's forgive each other. And let's not judge each other. Let's give each other the benefit of the doubt and run toward Jesus together because we are all yet unfinished. Looking at the last verse, verse 16, it says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And so that just means the things that God's taught us, we hold on to those things. As we live this life with Jesus, he's going to teach us things, and over time, he'll show us ways that we think differently, and he'll correct us and bring us into better relationship with him. Those are the things that we attain. Something I love about my job is I get to share knowledge about God that I have um, with people that I mentor. A lot of college students, a lot of what I do revolves around discipling college students. And so I know I don't know everything, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I, I feel that, I know that. But over the years of being a Christian, God has shown me things and I get to share those things. I especially love late nights at the guy's house, staying up till 2 a.m., just like hashing out theology and stuff. I can like download things that I know and just dump it on him. Like this whole time I've been a Christian, they're like, maybe they've been a Christian for six months and I can just, boom, here it is. This is what I know, you know? And people have done that for me. People who are like 50 and can just download, boom, all then here it is. And I'm like, wow, you know, it's sweet. And that's like also beautiful friendship and fellowship. That's us. We're striving toward Christ together. Another example, this one's maybe a little funnier. In particular, something that comes up often with these fellas is they try to date girls. And so I had one in particular, I'm leaving this gentleman anonymous, uh, but he goes to me, he goes, Alden, I, I'm, I went on a date today. I'm like, oh, dude, that's really exciting. How'd it go? It was not fun. I'm like, oh, tough, okay. And he was like, yeah, I, I don't like the girl either. I'm like, okay, cool. What are you gonna do? He's like, I think what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna kinda like keep her at arm's length for about a month and a half, really keep communication to a minimum, and then reach out to her after about a month and a half and ask her on a follow-up date. You know, just like make sure I'm guarding her heart kind of thing. I don't wanna give her too much, you know, but I wanna keep that month and a half distance. I'm like, okay, okay, huh. And I'm kinda like, well, tell me why you think that. You know, I just kinda hide my smile, you know, behind my hand. Some of these projects are a little easier than others. But in all seriousness, 
like, that's funny, and he knows that we, we made some fun of him, and that was a fun time. But I think the attitude that we ought to have toward people like this is, look, I've been there. We all need help. I know the people that mentor me laugh at me all the time because I'm a knucklehead, you know? And especially when we account for this guy who I'm talking about has never had anyone disciple him. Has, I'm the first person that's ever, like, long-term talked about how to follow Jesus to him before. He's never had anybody do that. He didn't know how to date. Anybody. He had never thought about dating before in his life. No one had told him anything about it. No one had told him how to encourage a sister in Christ toward Jesus in the context of dating. He had no clue. I don't know if I would have gotten to my first date. He did better than I did, I think, you know? So I can't imagine where I'd be without the help of my mentors. And we all need each other. So let's do the us thing. Let's hold on to these things that Jesus gives us and let's bless each other with those things so that we can all together strive toward Jesus and his resurrection with him together. When Jesus prepared his disciples for what he was going to do on the cross, he took a piece of bread and he told them in Luke chapter 22, 19 and 20, it reads this. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When we take communion, we remember how Jesus was destroyed for our sakes so that we would not be. He saved us so that we would know him and so that we would be resurrected with him on the last day. So if you're a Christian, let's take communion in remembrance of Jesus dying for our sakes, breaking his body like this piece of bread. Take this in remembrance of me. How communion works during COVID is there's a cup under your seat. On the top of it, there's a piece of bread. Underneath, there's the juice. This is a space for you to pray, reflect on what you're hearing, and take communion on your own time. I do need to mention, the Bible does say communion is only for Christians. And so, if you're not a Christian, we ask that you don't take communion during this time. But this is still a space for everyone to pray and reflect about what you're hearing. In particular, we want to invite you to pray with people in the back. The only reason that they're there is to pray for you. So, if you want prayer, they're offering that to you. Let's take communion now. <laughs>